Chapter 27 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clemens Dane. Chapter 27. The summer holidays came and went. Eight cloudless weeks of them. Claire loved the sun, was well content to be out day after day, cushioned and replete, on the sunniest strip of sand in the sunniest corner of the parched and gasping England. She found it wonderfully soothing to listen with shut eyes to the purr of the sea, and the distant cries of gulls and children, with Alwyn to fan her and shade her, and clamber up and down two hundred feet of red cliff for her when the corkscrew was forgotten, or the salt, or Claire's bathing dress, or a half-read magazine. Claire grew brown and plump as the drowsy days went by. Alwyn grew brown, too, but she certainly did not grow plumper. But then the heat never suited Alwyn. She had often said so, as she reminded Elspeth. For, when Alwyn came back to her for the three weeks at home that she had persuaded Claire would do to Elspeth, Elspeth was difficult to satisfy. Elspeth was inclined to be indignant. What sort of a holiday had it been, if Alwyn could come back so thin and tired, and colorless under her tan. What had Miss Harl been about to allow it? But Alwyn's account of their pleasant, lazy days was certainly appeasing. It must have been the heat. Not even the most suspicious of ants could conscientiously suspect Claire of having anything to do with it. Wait till September came, with his cooling skies. Alwyn would be better then. In the meantime, Elspeth tried what Karen Cookery and Codlin could do, and Alwyn submitted more patiently than usual. Alwyn, indeed, was unusually gentle with Elspeth in the three weeks they spent together before the autumn term began. She was always good to Elspeth, considerate of her bodily comforts, lovingly demonstrative. But Clara had taught Alwyn very carefully that she was growing up at last, becoming financially and morally independent, free to lead her own life, that if she stayed with Elspeth it was by favor, not by duty. And Alwyn, immensely flattered by the picture of herself as a woman of the world, had lived up to it with her usual drastic enthusiasm. Elspeth, not unused to disillusionment and hopes deferred, could sigh and smile and acquiesce, knowing it for the phase that it was and forgiving Alwyn in advance. But Clare, who owed her neither gratitude nor duty, she never forgave. She was a very human woman, for all her saintliness. She got her reward that summer, when Alwyn came back, quieted, grave, very tender with Elspeth, clinging to her sometimes as if she were nearer nine than nineteen. But Elspeth was fated never to have her happiness untainted. She was haunted by the conviction that Alwyn's subduement was not natural. Her pleasure in being with her aunt was so obvious that Elspeth was worried, and knowing how infallibly Alwyn turned to her in any trouble, she expected revelations. But none came, only the manner was there that always accompanied them. Yet something was wrong, a quarrel with Claire Hartle. But Alwyn, delicately questioned, chattered happily enough of their holiday, and there were frequent letters. She was over-anxious, too, to protest that she was perfectly well, and, in proof, exhausted herself in unnecessary housework but she continued restless and abstracted, jumped absurdly at any sudden noise, and followed Elspeth about like a homeless dog. 
and she had contracted an odd habit of coming late at night into Elsbeth's room, trailing blankets and a pillow under her arm to beg to sleep on Elsbeth's sofa. Just this once. She would laugh at herself and pull Elsbeth's face down to her for a kiss, but she never gave any good reason for her whim. But she came so often that Elsbeth had a bed made up for her at last, and she slept there all the holidays, or lay awake. Elsbeth suspected that she lay awake two nights out of three. With the autumn term, Alwyn seemed to rouse herself and flung herself into her work with her usual energy. Elsbeth saw less of her. The school claimed all her days, and Clara the bulk of her evenings. She had moved back into her own room again, and Elsbeth, her door ajar, would lie and watch the crack of light across the passage and grieve over her darling sleeplessness and the shocking waste of electric light. She wondered if the girl were working too hard. Could that be at the root of the matter? She grew so anxious that she could even consult Clara on one of the latter's rare and formal calls. I am so glad to see you. Alwyn is changing. She'll be down in a minute. I made her lie down. Miss Hardell, I'm very distressed about the child. Do you think she looks well? Clara, less staccato than usual, certainly didn't think so. So thin. She's growing so dreadfully thin. Her neck. You should see her neck. Salt cellars, literally. And she had such a beautiful neck. But you've never seen her in evening dress. Yes, Clara had seen her. And so white and listless. I don't know what to make of her. I don't know what to do. Clara, with unusual gentleness, would not advise Elsbeth to worry herself. Possibly Alan was doing a little too much. Clara would make inquiries. But she was sure that Elsbeth was over-anxious. But Elsbeth was not to be comforted. She nodded to the open door. Look at her now, dragging across the hall. But Alwyn, in her gay frock, cheeks, at sight of Clare, suddenly aflame, did not look as if there were much amiss. She was thinner, of course. Elsbeth, however, had made Clare uneasy. She attacked Alwyn on the following day. Your aunt says you're dying, Alwyn. What's the matter? Dear old Elspeth, Alwyn laughed lightly. Is anything wrong? Claire did not appear to look at her. Nevertheless, she did not miss the slight change in Alwyn's face, as she answered with careful cheeriness. What should be wrong in this best of all possible? Claire caught her up. I'm not a fool, Alwyn. What's the matter? I wish you wouldn't discuss me with Elspeth, said Alwyn uneasily. I don't like it. I won't have you bothered. I'm not, said Claire coolly. At the same time, Alwyn braced herself. She knew the tone. I don't like anyone about me with a secret grief and a pale, courageous smile. I can't stand a martyr. I'm not. Alwyn was wincing. Then suddenly, what has Elspeth been saying? Honestly, I didn't know she'd noticed anything. What is the matter? said Claire again, gently enough. Tell me, silly child. Alwyn shrugged her shoulders. Nothing, just life. Claire waited. I'm sorry if I've been horrid, she paused, to Elspeth. Claire opened her eyes. What about me? I'm never horrid to you, said Alwyn with compunction. That's what's so beastly of me. Well, upon my word, cried Claire blankly. Oh, you know what I mean. 
Alwyn jumbled her words. I always want to be nice to you. It's perfectly easy. And then I go home to Elspeth, the darling, and am grumpy and snappy, and show her all the hateful side of me. Heaven knows why. Only yesterday she said, You wouldn't speak to Claire Hartle like that, in her dear, hurt voice. I felt such a brute. A little smile hovered at the corners of Claire's mouth. I was always so sorry, said Claire smoothly, that you couldn't spend Christmas Day with me last year. Alwyn wrinkled her forehead. What's that got to do? Claire caught her up. With your secret griefs? Nothing whatever. You're quite right. But what are they, Alwyn? Who's been worrying you? Have you got too much to do? It's not that, said Alwyn unwillingly. Then what? Oh, things. What things? Miss Vigorous, for one, Alwyn began. Then she burst out. Claire, I don't know what I've done to her. She never leaves me alone. Claire stiffened. Miss Vigors, what has she to say to you? You're responsible to me, after Miss Marsham. She doesn't seem to think so. It's nag, 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 fuss, fuss, fuss. Are the girls working properly? Am I not neglecting this or overdoing that? Do I remember that Dolly Brown had measles three terms ago? Why is Winifred Hawkins allowed to sit with the light in her eyes? Do I make a habit of keeping so-and-so in? And if so, why so? And Miss Marsham doesn't approve of this, and Miss Marsham evidently doesn't know of that, and my manner is excessively independent, and will I kindly remember? Oh, Claire, it's simply awful. I get no peace, and you know how driven I am, with Miss Hutchins away. You'd think I'd done something awful from the way she treats me everlastingly spying and hinting. Hinting what? Claire's voice was icy. That's what I can't make out. That's the maddening part of it. Do you think I'm such a failure? Do you think I'm not to be trusted? I get on with the children. They work well. Truly, Claire, I don't know why she dislikes me so. You'd think she was trying to worry me into leaving. You should have told me before, said Claire curtly and changed the subject so abruptly that Alwyn feared she was angry, and wished that she had held her tongue. She was right. Claire was angry. Claire had conveniently forgotten her little conversation with Henrietta on that panic-stricken summer day, was naturally surprised and indignant to find it bearing the fruit she had intended it to bear. This was what came of confiding in people, and Henrietta, she had no doubt, would be prepared to give chapter and verse for her surveillance, if Claire should directly or indirectly call it in question. Henrietta would appear to have Claire in a cleft stick, and Alwyn was to suffer in consequence. Claire, a great deal fonder of Alwyn than she, or Alwyn, or anyone save Elspeth guessed, laughed to herself once, softly, and her eyes snapped. Wait a while, Henrietta. Wait a wee while. Thoughtfully she approached the question of the counterattack. That was inevitable, a sop to her own conscience. Besides, it would be amusing. It was necessary, however, to decide upon the weapon. It was a small matter, the refusal of a border for lack of space, that provided it. Quietly, she went to work. For the first time, for her own departments had allowed her energy its outlet, she set herself to disentangle the lines on which the school was run. She found many knots. 
half-day, half-boarding school, grown from a timid beginning into one of the most flourishing of its kind. It was, indeed, like the five-hundred-year-old town in which it stood, a marvelous compound of ancient custom and modern usage. The Seminary for Young Ladies of the Seventies was three parts obliterated by the Nineties High School Regimen, on which, in its turn, was superimposed the cricket and hockey of the twentieth century's effemination of the public school system. The whole swollen, patchwork concern held together by the personality of its creator and its own reputation. Claire nodded. It was obvious to her that with the retirement of Miss Marsham, accomplished already in all save name, the school would fall to pieces. A pity. It had a fine past, was a valuable property still, with a vigorous woman at its head, judiciously iconoclastic, no stickler for tradition. It would revive its youth. She herself, for instance, she toyed with the idea. Miss Marsham was looking out for a successor. She herself had been sounded. Should she? She shook her head. Life was very pleasant as it was. She knew that she hated responsibility as much as she liked power. She sat on the school's shoulders at present. As headmistress, the school would sit on hers. No, thank you. She had better uses for her spare time. There were books, idleness, Alwyn. Imagine never having time to play with Alwyn. Nevertheless, it would be fascinating to plan out the reorganization of the school, and carry it out, for that matter. She could do it, she knew. She would get all pat and then have some talks, some suggestive talks, with Miss Marsham. She, Claire, had some little influence, and there was life in the old warhorse yet. Anything that she could be persuaded to believe would benefit her school, would have her instant sanction. She would be nominally responsible, of course, and would give Claire, nevertheless, a free hand. And Claire, sweeping clean, would sweep away whatever withstood her. Henrietta would have little energy left for Alwyn when Claire had finished her spring cleaning. For the next few weeks, Claire spent nearly all her spare time at the school. She would stay to supper, and even, on occasion, superintend lights out. She would ask artless questions, and the matron and the young mistresses found her so sympathetic when you really got her to yourself. So sensible, you know, always sees what you mean. Finally, Claire shut herself up for a Saturday and a Sunday with a neat little notebook and drew up plans and made some calculations. Then she went to see Miss Marsham. She went to see Miss Marsham several times. The plan was certainly an excellent one. Miss Marsham could not follow the details very well, but that, of course, would be dear Claire's affair. A great saving, an immense improvement. There would be changes, of course. This idea of separate houses, for instance, it would mean taking extra premises. But Claire was quite right. They were overcrowded, had had to turn away girls. She quite agreed with Claire. She had always preferred boarders herself. One had a freer hand. With a mistress responsible for each house, though, what would there be left for Miss Vickers to do? Yes, she might take over a house, of course, but Miss Marsham paused uneasily. She anticipated trouble with Henrietta. She was justified. Henrietta refused utterly to discuss the suggested alterations. Miss Marsham must excuse her. She had her position. 
one house after controlling the entire school's economy? She did not suggest that Miss Marsham could be serious. That was impossible. Miss Marsham was serious? Then there was no more to be said. She said a good deal, however, and at considerable length. Ended, breathless, waspish, leaving her resignation in her principal's hands. Neither she nor Miss Marsham dreamed that it would be accepted. But Claire Hardell, consulted by Miss Marsham, was puzzlingly relieved. Very delicately, she congratulated her chief on being extricated from a difficult position, praised Miss Figure's tact, or her sense of fitness. Unusual good sense. People so seldom realize their limitations, unprompted. Poor Miss Figures was certainly no longer young, hardly the woman for a modern housemistress-ship. Old-fashioned, in these days of degrees and college training, so much more was expected. And after that affair in the summer, no doubt she had lost confidence in herself. Claire was sure that Miss Figures had appreciated Miss Marsham's forbearance, but of course she must know, in her own heart, that if she had taken proper precautions, it was her business to arrange for a mistress to be on duty, wasn't it? The accident could not have happened. Poor little Louise. Oh, and of course, poor Miss Figures, too. Well, it was for the best, she supposed, and Miss Figures seemed to feel that it was time for her to go. Perhaps it was, but they would all be sorry to lose her. Claire really thought that she would like to get up a presentation from the school. Now what did Miss Marsham consider appropriate? So Henrietta found herself taken at her word. She left, passionately resentful, at the half-term, hoping, at least, to embarrass her employer thereby. But Claire Hartle knew of such a nice, suitable woman, Noonham. Henrietta Vigors was forty-seven when she left. She had spent youth and prime at the school, and had nothing more to sell. She had neither certificates nor recommendations behind her. She was hampered by her aggressive gentility. Out of a fifty-pound salary, she had scraped together five hundred pounds. Invested daringly, it yielded her twenty-five pounds a year. She had no friends outside the school. She left none within it. Miss Marsham presented her with a gold watch, decorously inscribed, the school with a handsomely bound edition of Shakespeare. Heaven knows what became of her. End of chapter 27 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona